Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Church Online. And I always want to let you know that this is not a substitute for church, but we're doing the best that we can to gather online in the gathering that is Gospel City Church. Thanks for joining us. You are going to need a Bible this morning, so grab one. Get it open to Luke chapter 20. Uh, we're in this series that we've entitled Divine Deconstruction. We're looking at stories about how Jesus intersected with people's lives and really began to deconstruct, to unravel wrong belief systems and faulty foundations. Last week we saw that uh, Jesus wants to deconstruct my control issues. And this week we're going to see how Jesus wants to deconstruct a divisive spirit that is inside the heart of every one of us. That has got to be deconstructed. We're living in an unusual time and we're living in a season where, fe where fear is fueling division. I have a friend that serves on the Chamber of Commerce here in the South Bend area and I was talking with him the other day and of course they gather weekly and they hear the updates from the medical community and the government community and um, the economic community and my friend just said you guys are really doing a great job at scaring people and he asked the question whose job is it to unscare us and as he was telling me this story i lifted my hand i'm like i guess that's my job i guess that's the job of the pastors in the community to unscare us and so that's what i'm going to try to do over the course of the next few minutes as we open god's word we need to hear from god's word so that we will not create a spirit of division in our community and in our church. Uh, this past week, we've been doing some painting and remodeling at the house because we're in the house and we've got time to do it. And so I needed to run to the store and get some paint. And as I walked up to the store, I was greeted by a nice security officer there um, with a sign that said, in order to shop in our store, you're going to need to wear one of these. This has become the symbol of division in our culture. When he told me I had to wear this thing, I, I immediately thought, I do not want to wear a mask. I just need to buy paint. I don't need a mask to buy paint. And I didn't want to wear it because I don't like breathing in my face. And I didn't want to wear it because I don't want to hide the brilliant smile that God's given me. I didn't want to wear it because I don't like being told what to do. But then the better of my thinking came around and I thought, I, I can wear this because I want to show concern for other people. I can wear this because I might, I might have a virus that could actually kill someone in the store. I may not be aware of that. And... I can wear this because I need paint. And so I put the mask on, I walked through the store, I bought my paint and I left. But if you're like me, there's something within you that's arisen during these days that wants to fight for your right to wear or not to wear a mask. And it's all fueled by a spirit of fear that we're living in. We're, we're fearing for our lives because there's a health crisis. We're fearing the loss of our income and our livelihood because of the economic situation. We're fearing about government overreach because we feel like we have some God-given unalienable rights that we should be able to hold on to. But I want to talk to you today about a fear that is even more deadly than the coronavirus. You know, my greatest fear is as a pastor is that we would allow our fears to cause us 
to lose our minds at valuing the thing that is of most importance. And that is our unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's text that we're going to look at speaks directly to the situation that we're dealing with. Um, We just verse by verse march through the Bible. I don't pick what comes next. It's just that this is what's coming next. It's going to be a familiar passage. It's going to speak to us about uh, this issue of divisiveness. I, I remember back on March the 11th. I don't know what you were doing on March the 11th. I remember it very vividly. It was a Wednesday. It was my wife's birthday. And that's when everything was starting to shut down. And I immediately had the thought, our country and our church is about to walk through what's commonly known as the five stages of grief. Are you familiar with those? Um, Denial. This can't be happening. Surely it isn't that bad. That's the first stage. And then we come around to anger and then bargaining and depression and then acceptance. My heart as a pastor is so heavy right now for some of you that are stuck in stage two. Not stage two of the opening of guidelines, but the stage two of the stages of grief, the stage of anger. Some of you are stuck in that, and it's causing a spirit of division that's growing that I believe is a greater threat to our churches, our family, and our nation than even COVID-19. This divisive spirit is fueled by a skepticism toward voices in the media, medical experts, and government. And listen, I understand mistrust of media and the government. Some of that is healthy. But listen, the alternatives are even less trustworthy. Mistrust is rooted in fear, and it too often leads us to become vulnerable to sensationalism. What we need right now is an infusion of God-given peace, supernatural discernment that comes from a mind that is saturated with biblical truth. And the further your mind strays away from biblical truth, the more susceptible your mind becomes to lies and fears. When Christians begin to believe and share discredited information, we look foolish and we lose our credibility to speak to those who need to hear us speaking about Christ. And when Christians begin to speak with a tone that reflects fear and anger and rage and distrust, you may think you're helping, but you are fueling a spirit of divisiveness. As a shepherd, a pastor, I I feel like I'm watching my sheep where there's been a, a... I don't know, something that has spooked the sheep and everybody's running around crazy, running into each other and and harming and hurting each other. And I just want to say as a shepherd, would everybody please just calm down and listen to the shepherd, the great shepherd who knows your name. He knows what you need. The virus that will kill the church is not microbial. It's spiritual. The coronavirus pandemic will not kill the church, but a spirit of division will. Its symptoms are arrogance, self-righteousness, demanding of rights, and hatred toward anybody with whom we disagree. 
And if we don't kill the pandemic of division with the disinfectants of humility, hope, love, and joy, then when the church does reopen, nobody's going to come because nobody wants to sit in a community of angry, fearful, disgruntled, self-righteous people. There has never been a time when our culture needed to hear a word of calm and clarity from Christians. There's never been a time when a fearful, foolish world needs to hear Christians speak with humility, with wisdom, and with calm assurance that God is in control. So rather than posting your latest rant on the latest government guidelines or the stay-at-home orders or wearing it mask, listen, your followers would be better served by you simply posting a verse of Scripture and your confidence in it. Here's a good question. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do if he needed to buy paint and was told to wear a mask? Um, what would Jesus do if he was living under a political regime that was oppressive and, and, and corrupt, didn't value religious freedom? What, what would he do? Would, would he start a, a rebellion? Would he accuse them of being tyrannical? What would he do? Oh, 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 wait a minute. Wait, wait. We don't have to guess. All we have to do is open our Bibles because we have a historical record of Jesus living in a culture that was being dominated by an oppressive, overreaching government. At this season that we're about to read right now in Luke chapter 20, the, the Jews, the God-fearing people, were living under Roman rule, and the emperor was a man named Siberius, or, or, uh, Caesar Tiberius. And Caesar I, uh, Tiberius was a man who was incredibly oppressive to his people. Why don't we just take time to read here in Luke chapter 20, beginning here in verse 19. And the scribes and the chief priests, those were the religious leaders, they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. If you were listening last week, the previous paragraph here is about Jesus telling a, a parable about these wicked tenants that beat up and destroyed and kicked out and even killed the son of the owner of the vineyard. And they perceived, hey, you're talking about us. So Jesus offended them and they wanted to seize him. It says, but they feared the people because Jesus was very popular with the people. Verse 20 says, So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. That would have been the Roman governor Pilate who had been sent by Caesar Tiberius into the land of Israel to govern it. Verse 21 says, And so they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. You can hear the sarcasm in their voice. And show no partiality, but, but truly teach the way of God. And they devised a question that would test where Jesus fell in his political views. And so we have the question, verse 21, it simply says this, Is it lawful for us 
to wear a mask. No, that's not what I said. Sorry, that was, that was an interpretation. In verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Notice how binary their question is. No compromise, no, no room for, no wiggle room, no middle ground here. Do we pay tribute to Caesar or not? And that was the question they used to try to put Jesus in a political box. But Jesus refuses to play with their, uh, their games. The, the religious and civil leaders were both threatened by Jesus. The scribes and the religious authorities, they were threatened by Jesus' authority over them as he began to teach the Word of God in a way contrary to them. And then, of course, the, the civil leaders, Pilate and, and Caesar Tiberius, were threatened by Jesus because of his popularity among the people, and they were afraid that he might lead an insurrection, a revolt. Or was Jesus a revolutionary? These religious leaders, the scribes, and the political leaders, Caesar, they couldn't agree on anything except one thing. They both hated Jesus. So they conspired together. You want to talk about a conspiracy theory? Here is one that's true. Everybody hated Jesus. And they lined up against him and they tried to take him out. They wanted him removed. They wanted him questioned. They, they wanted him removed. The question that they ask, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not, is rooted in this. What is the government's power to tell God-fearing people what they can and they can't do? So what do you think Jesus said? Now, their, their question involved taxes. This tribute was a tax, and there were lots of taxes. I'm sure you can't relate to, to this at all, but there were property taxes and sales taxes and income taxes. But the Roman emperor had instituted a new tax. It was called the head tax. And this head tax was simply for the privilege of being ruled by Caesar. And it wasn't a lot of money. It was just a small amount of money, but it was more what it represented. It, when that tax was put into place, there was such a revolt. 25 years earlier, before this scene, before this question, there was an uprising. There was a revolt against Rome. People were posting on their Facebook accounts about how tyrannical the government was, and people were marching on the Capitol and holding signs. It was bad. And they wanted to catch Jesus where he fell. Now, understand, if Jesus says, yes, you should pay the tax, then he would lose the support of the people because they were the Hebrew people, the Jews in, in Israel. They, they claimed this is our land that God gave us. It's the promised land. And, and Caesar has no right to tell us what to do. This, this land is our land and we will live free. And so if Jesus says, pay the tax, he's going to lose the support of the people. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, he's going to be killed by the authorities. They thought they knew how he would answer. They thought that he would say, no, Caesar's not your king. I've come to lead a revolution. I'm the true and better king. Who's with me? But that's not what he says. He refuses to be put in a political box.
Now, when you see the, the scribes and the chief priest in this story, I want you to think about super conservative people. People that value the law. And when you look at the governor here in the story, and even Caesar, I want you to think super progressive. These, these people, they, they think uh, the government doesn't want to be ruled by God's law. It doesn't pay any attention to God's law. It, it, times change, and we should move along. So you've got these two people that couldn't agree on anything, but they want, both want Jesus removed. They're, they're trying to get Jesus to come down on one side or the other. Jesus, are you conservative? You believe, you believe what we've always believed in the Old Testament scriptures? Or are you siding with a new way of thinking? They're trying to nail him. What member, what party are you a member of? Sound familiar? Does that sound like the culture you live in? In our current American political system, we have a two-party system. We're living in a time of great political division. Think about the word political, meaning two poles, and everybody has got a firm grip on their particular poll. It makes things very divisive. Every election, essentially, we're presented with two options. Our choices, even as believers, kind of binary. And it would lead us to believe that one side's right, the other side's wrong. We always have to choose between the lesser of two evils. In some cycles, there's more evils than others. But we always have to choose between the lesser of two evils. This two-party system can give us the illusion that everybody on my side are my friends, and everybody on the other side, they're my enemies. And it creates a divisiveness in our culture. And it's just not that simple. And if you think it's as simple as aligning yourself around the two opposite poles, then you are simple-minded. When it comes to issues like taxes and immigration and abortion and health care and foreign policy and racial justice and poverty and gay rights and religious freedom and education and environment, and the list can go on and on. You can read the two political platforms if you want. It's just not that simple. And Jesus did not come to take a side. Jesus came to take over. Jesus is not a conservative Republican, and Jesus is not a progressive Democrat. The conservatives in this story, the scribes, they think he's too progressive. And the progressives in this story, Caesar, they think he's too conservative. That's what Jesus does. And by the way, that doesn't mean that Jesus occupies a squishy place in the middle where he doesn't take a stand. Jesus is the better conservative. He's the better chief priest. And he's the better Caesar. He's the better king. In such a way that when he rules, he always rules perfectly with complete wisdom and discernment and grace and love and justice. You see, Jesus came to agitate and to confront and to claim authority over both political parties. Jesus calls conservatives to repent. 
Jesus calls progressives to repent. Jesus calls progressives to repent of denying timeless truths while def- what, about those truths defining and governing us. Jesus calls conservatives to repent of unjust systems that oppress people and everything in between. The gospel doesn't just sit outside of politics. The gospel enters into the political parties and stands over the political parties. It invades both and it calls both to repent. If Jesus, if, if both sides in this story hated Jesus, both the conservatives and the progressives, don't be surprised if they both hate you, or at least you don't frustrate people on both sides. You shouldn't feel perfectly at home as a Christian in any political party. Jesus becomes a moderating influence for people on the extreme. He influences us to think above and outside of the two systems. You see, the more you live like Jesus, the more you'll be like him in this story, the more you'll be hated by both sides. The more you live like Jesus, the more the conservative crowd will think you're too progressive. And the more you live by Je- like Jesus, the more the, the progressives will think you're too conservative. If no one in conservative circles ever accuses you of being progressive, you're not living like Jesus. And if no one in the progressive circle ever accuses you of being too conservative, you're not living like Jesus. If you think that everything you see on CNN is fake news, and if you think everything you see on Fox News is fake news, you're not tuned into the good news enough. Your allegiances are polarized around the wrong voice. Jesus refuses to be put in a political box, and you should too. Do you know why? Because as Christians, we are kingdom citizens first. We are are dual citizens as Christians. And our citizenship in the kingdom of God always transcends our citizenship in the kingdoms of this world. I want to take you to another place in Scripture. This is uh, written by the Apostle Peter. And before I even read this, I want you to understand the way that Peter died. He died hanging on a cross, upside down, crucified by an oppressive government. And this is what he says to us. He's speaking to a church. He says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Do you notice the descriptions that he uses? Sojourners. You know what that is? That's a temporary resident. That's someone that's just passing through. This world is not my home. The Republican Party is not my home. The Democratic Party is not my home. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm just on my way to a better place. It's one of the reasons we named our church Gospel City Church, and we've said this. We are a city within a city. We have a citizenship within the broader citizenship of our communities. We're a city sent to the city. We we don't just live in the city. We're sent to the city to be the voice of the gospel to the city. 
and that we are a city longing for a better city. We're on our way to a city where there's always justice. There's no corruption. The reign, the rule of Jesus is unrivaled. It's not a two-party system. It's a one-party system, and everybody there is fully serving Jesus in an environment of justice. King Jesus is our king. He calls us sojourners. But then secondly, he calls us exiles. Now, you would have to read your Old Testament to understand the significance of that word. The, the people of God were promised a land. And you know what they did? They created a theocracy. The only theocracy that's ever existed on the planet and do you know what happened? It was an absolute disaster. It, people lost their hearts for serving God. And even they, the, though they complied in their behavior at times, eventually they lost their heart for God. And as a result, God sent judgment, and they were taken out of the land, the promised land, and they were brought into exile under the tyrannical reign of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And they were exiles. They were removed from the place where they belonged. And Peter looks at us and says, you know what you are? You are a sojourner and you are an exile. That's what we are. We're living as exiles. We're living under a government that doesn't understand us. They don't get us. They don't like us. We agitate them. We, they agitate us. And, and it, it's because we, we, we're not quite home yet. And Peter says, understand, this is the way that we are to live. And understand the passions of your flesh. A lot of passion around politics. The passions of our flesh can create all kinds of rage when we don't get our way. But then he says this, that's what's, that's what's waging war. The war is not on the outside coming to you. The war is on the inside. And he says you've got to make sure you defend against the war on the inside of you. He continues, he says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they will because we're trying to serve and love Jesus, and they don't get us, they call us evildoers. They're going to speak evil against us, but when they do, if our conduct is honorable, notice what he says, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you understand what's at stake here? It's the glory of God. It's not about your comfort. It's not about your freedom. It's not about your rights. It's about the glory of God. And when they see a simple good deed, which in our context may just be as simply as doing this, to... To do a good deed, it's like, is, is this restricting me? It's like, it's no fun, I, I don't like this, but could I do this for the glory of God so that I look like a good citizen as an exile in a land where I don't belong? This world is not our home. We, we need to understand there's a better place waiting for us. And understand this, our church must have room for those who hold diverse political positions while never compromising on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're a gospel community where conservatives and Republicans and married and single and male and female and rich and poor and young and old and Irish and Wolverines and Sooners for crying out loud can come 
and bring ourselves under the authority of the Word of God and all of us as sinners repent as we have God as our King. Our citizenship in the kingdom of God transcends our citizenship in the kingdoms of this world. Secondly, our citizenship in the kingdom of God should make us better citizens in the world. Peter continues in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, who is he talking about? Caesar, as supreme, or to governors, he was speaking of Pilate at that point, who killed Jesus, or to governors as sent by him to do two things, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Do you want to know what the will of God is? Everybody's searching like, what is the will of God? I just wish you knew what the will of God is. Here's the will of God. He tells you in his word that by doing good, you should be put to, that you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So he tells us, live as people who are free. Yes, you are free. And as a citizen of heaven, you are free. We should fight for freedoms here on earth. He says, live as those who are free. But notice this, not using your freedom as a cover-up, not using your freedom as a mask for evil. See, that's the real mask that causes the division is somehow thinking that when I promote my freedom, it's a mask for just getting what I want and not sacrificing my freedom for the good of others. But he says, living as servants of God, and then hear this. He boils it down for us, four simple commands. Honor everyone, even people you disagree with, even unbelievers, even people who have an entirely different worldview than you. Honor them. People in the other party, people on the other side, honor everyone. And then he says, love the brotherhood. See, that's talking about the church. Not fighting and being devices, but we have to love one another. And then fear God. That's the fear that removes every other fear. And then honor the emperor. Christians are commanded by God to obey their authorities up to the point we cannot obey God. Disobeying government is disobedience to God unless obedience to God demands disobeying government. So before you disobey your government, you better be able to point to some specific command in Scripture that you would be required to disobey. And by the way, American Christians, what in the world do we have to complain about? American Christians who complain that their government is oppressive owe an apology to our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in other places in the world where there is true tyranny. You are not living under tyranny because your government asks you to wear a mask or stay at home. And the simple fact that you have the freedom to post your complaint on Facebook about it is the evidence you're not living under tyranny. Listen, when your government requires you to renounce your faith in Christ or die like brothers and sisters in Christ in the other parts of the world, 
then you can make your Facebook post about living under tyranny. You say, but our government's so corrupt. Every government is corrupt because every government is governed by fallen, corrupt men. As a matter of fact, in America, I think our government is so good, it gives us the illusion it could be perfect if only I was in charge. But if you were in charge, you'd corrupt it too because the problem is on the inside. The corruption is not out there, it's in here. The corruption's not in the White House, the corruption's in my house. Winston Churchill had an interesting thing to say about democratic forms of government. This is what he said. He said, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried. And so we need to be careful as citizens of the kingdom to have a lack of gratefulness for the freedoms that we enjoy here. Story continues in Luke chapter 20. Verse 23 says this. Let's find out how it ends. But he perceived, Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. That was a coin that was used to pay the tax. And he says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus says, show me a coin. Show, anybody got a coin? Now notice the reason Jesus had to ask someone to show him a coin is because he didn't have a coin. So he asked for someone to show him a coin. They pull out a coin. Would you like to see a a picture of a denarius. Here's an actual denarius. On one side, you have the image of Caesar Tiberius, just like you pull out a quarter today and you see, um, you know, one of our dead presidents there. And so that's on one side. On the other side, there's a picture of Tiberius sitting on a throne, pretending to be king, but he's also dressed in priestly garments. And so when the Jews looked at this, do you know what they immediately thought? First thing they thought is this, that is a violation of the second commandment. And, and they, they didn't even want to be found with these coins on them. They, didn't, they felt like it, it, was, it was blasphemy for the image of Caesar to be stamped on a coin. Jesus says, show it to me. Don't be afraid of it. Just, just show it to me. Who's, whose picture's on that? Whose image is on the coin? And when he said the word image, those scribes that knew the Bible better than anyone, when he said the word image, there's not a doubt in my mind, they thought of the first page of our Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Do you know what it says? It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Do you know what that verse teaches us? That verse teaches us that every one of us has the image of God stamped into our lives. As much as the image of Caesar was stamped into that coin, the image of God is stamped into our hearts. We were made, we were created for the purpose of displaying the image the likeness of God. Jesus says, show me that coin. 
and he shows it to him. The inscription on the other side of that coin, you might have been able to notice it there in foreign language, but this is what was stamped on there. It says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. On the coin, Caesar is claiming to be the son of God. Jesus says, show me the coin. What's he claiming? What is that? I mean, it's like the, it's the debate between uh, Michael Jordan and Le- LeBron James. Who's the greatest? Who's the king? Who's the son of God? Let's have a competition right now. And Jesus is trying to communicate to these guys, listen, there will always be claims that are not true. There, there will always be claims of government leaders for things that don't belong to them. So what does Jesus do? Does Jesus say pay the tax or does he say not pay the tax? He just simply says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and render unto God the things that are God. The word render, what does that, that's an important word. Render, we don't use that much anymore. Does it mean give? What does it mean? It means to give back that which has already been given to you. And Jesus was saying, the only reason you have that coin is because it was given to you by Caesar. He made it. It came out of his own wealth. He stamped it, put his image on it. It belongs to him. So if he wants it back, then give it to him. That is your responsibility. So here's the point. We are to render responsibility to Caesar, but render our love to God. We display the image of God when we reflect the love of God. We display the image of God when we reflect the grace of God. We reflect the unity of the Trinity when we live together in unity and community. And we distort the image of God when we have a divisive spirit that pulls us into opposite poles. So render to Caesar what belongs to him. We have a responsibility to pay taxes. We have a responsibility to vote. You should vote. Better than that, run for office. Get inside of there and be an agitator. Call your particular party to repentance. That's what it means to render responsibility. But it also says render uh, to Caesar. We should render honor to Caesar, but, but render our worship only to God. You see, Caesar wants more than he deserves. And we should give him what he deserves, but not what he wants. There are things that exclusively belong to God. We're to render our attention to Caesar, but render our allegiance to God and God alone. Listen, never render absolute allegiance to any man. The two political parties want our absolute allegiance to all the things on their particular platform. As Christians, we'll never be able to do that because the gospel critiques and rebukes and calls both to repentance. The word render here may not be a a word that you use as much, but there's another one that's a Bible word that's based on that. It's it's one you're more familiar, familiar with. It's this. Don't just render. Surrender. Surrender your sin to God. The way that we come to Christ and become a Christ follower is we bring all of the, the junk, the, 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 the hatred for 
a king to rule over me, the, 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 the evil, wicked passion in me that wants to be my own king. The way you become a follower of Christ is you surrender your sin to Christ. We surrender our fears to God. We surrender our rights. We surrender our wealth. We don't just pay taxes to to Caesar. We give all of our wealth to God and say, God, whatever you want, it all belongs to you. You just take it and move it around. Thanks for letting me use some of it. It all belongs to you. We surrender our political positions to God. We surrender our family to God. We surrender our sexuality to God. We surrender our whole lives to God. The final verse here sums up the story. It says, And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. All in favor of more of that, less talking, more silence, more marveling, less posting. When was the last time that you marveled at the answers of Jesus? That's what took place in this story. His answers transcended their questions. So, would Jesus wear a mask? I honestly have no idea. I, I, I do know this. I do know that Jesus wore a crown of thorns for you. I do know that Jesus wore a cross of wood on His back for you. And as He died there on that cross and He was taken down before they placed Him in the tomb, He didn't just have a linen cloth placed over his face. His whole body was wrapped in a burial cloth for you. And for three days he laid there conquering sin, claiming his rightful authority over all other kingdoms. And on early Sunday morning, his disciples went there with the women and they stepped in and they didn't see a body. They saw those linen cloths laying aside as demonstration that Christ is risen. I don't know if he would wear a cloth into a store. I do know this. He's wearing a crown today. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we live as citizens of his kingdom. And we are exiles and sojourners in the kingdoms of this world. I want to pray for you right now. Would you bow your heads wherever you're at? King Jesus, in fresh new ways, as best we know how, we render to you the things that belong to you. The very breath in our lungs, all the money in all of our pockets and bank accounts, our families, our possessions, our reputation, our future. We render our sin to you. We render our fears to you. And God, I pray that in this this difficult season, the image of God that is stamped in us would display your glory to a world that is fearful and foolish, give incredible wisdom and discernment and grace so that there is no division within your body. 
you are exalted and we render to you the things that belong to you today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.